Welcome to the Here Be Dragons podcast. My name is Brett Landry. I'm one of the pastors at Christ City Church. I'm sitting here today with Jake Lefave, lead pastor of Christ City East Vancouver. And to my left, I have Fred Eaton, lead pastor of Christ City Kitsilano. And uh, guys, we have had the joy of entering into a series now for a number of weeks on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived. And uh, I think just as we talk about this, we've learned a lot already on our own, and, and I think there's been some, maybe for, for me anyway, some unique emphases that I've, I've picked up already in working through the Beatitudes, and we just want to take some time, talk about a little, uh, a little bit what's happening in our own hearts as we go through this. Yeah, and if I can begin with a bit of a confession, if that's okay with you guys, uh, I'm a bit embarrassed as to how impacted or how I have not been impacted previously uh, by the Sermon on the Mount, seeing how foundational it is. Uh, for the Christian life, for following Jesus, uh, really has been really a revolutionary to me. And I know I'm not by myself. As I talk with people on a Sunday or even our community group throughout the week, um, people seeing texts that they're very familiar with and having no idea like what those actually meant, like how they're, are they to understand the Beatitudes. And mm-hmm. so I'm excited as well. Looking forward to Fred dropping some knowledge and some wisdom. <laughs> uh, Brett, some, some, I guess. Uh, <laughs> and I'll well, go from there. Well, I think part of it is Sermon on the Mount's terrifying. Yeah, if, it, if it's to be taken seriously. Yeah, like if this is to be taken seriously, this is pretty scary stuff. And there, especially in the Beatitudes, which you know we're we're recording this while we're in the middle of preaching the Beatitudes. I, I think especially in the Beatitudes, because y- you don't know how to take it. Is this is this some sort of idealistic thing that Jesus is pointing to that we'll never live up to? Is this some sort of thing that's only future, and so we only mm-hmm. take hold of it in the new creation? Mm-hmm. And and so when you talk about being no to both those, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it, right, this is yeah. this is for here and now. Yeah. And uh, we've talked a lot about this, but importing the future promises of God into our current moment and our current context and issue. But yeah, I think they're intimidating to look at. And so sometimes in Scripture, when there's something that's intimidating. We don't glean from it what we should. We just sort of pass over it and think, I don't really right. know how to read this. Right. What I love about preaching something like the Sermon on the Mount is that you're very familiar with it in one sense, right? but then you, you have to preach it. And if you don't punch through that familiarity, that, um, you know, the language that just you've heard hundreds of times, the quick um, meaning that maybe you would have associated with certain things that Jesus says. And you've got to work through that and past that until it begins to hit you. And then it kind of takes your breath away. And you realize, I love what somebody said, I I can't remember where I read it, but um, Jesus is not against us. These are not uh, things that Jesus is saying in order for us to feel our inability. Rather, this this is Jesus being for us. He's calling us into... Um, the life of his kingdom, and you begin to feel uh, what what a transformative work he really wants to do in our lives, and how powerful the Spirit is in really getting a hold of us. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that what you touched on that, Fred, it's a bit of the intimidating factors. You're stepping in a stream mm-hmm. and a history of interpretation with this, and we covered this in those little books that we made yeah. to give out to people. But uh, people have strongly interpreted the Sermon on the Mount in particular ways, and so you feel as if you have to engage with all these very uh, smart, 
uh, very thoughtful people throughout the ages as you preach it. Uh, and so it can be intimidating in that sense as well, yeah, too. Yeah, and to sometimes disagree with them wholeheartedly right. yeah. and say, I actually don't think that's what Jesus was getting at. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and those are, you know, you're thankful for the, in a certain way, the community of scholars and theologians, both dead and alive, who inform uh, the way that we think and what we do, also with the community of, of uh, thinkers around Christ City. And so we definitely engage with one another as we prep through these things and, and wrestle through it sometimes. Yeah, and I think uh, I want to get to uh, particularly what you guys are, are kind of coming to see and wrestling with, but I think it might be helpful, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here. Uh, we posted a blog post not too long ago about what we're reading throughout mm-hmm. the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the, the voices that are informing what we think and shaping us as we prepare our sermons, uh, much of which, if we're honest, uh, you know, gets left on the cutting room floor, uh, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fred, I would love if you would start just by telling us uh, maybe what is that book you, you mentioned on the blog that's been really forming and shaping your thinking uh, on the Sermon on the Mount? Well, um, I recommend David Martin Lloyd-Jones' book, Studies in the Sermon on the Mount. It's a series of messages that he preached Years ago, I think it was in the 50s or 60s, um, it was 66 messages on Matthew 5 through 7. They got published is, uh, as a two-volume book, a two-volume set of books. And there's a neat story there. Um, when I became a Christian in 1993, um, I was at St. John's, and I asked somebody, I was probably two or three weeks old in the Lord, And I asked somebody for a book recommendation. I wanted to know what had happened to me. I wanted to put some thinking to this transformation that was had taken place and was obviously taking place in my life. And the guy I asked, I remember exactly what he said. He said, I don't know. And then he pointed out an older gentleman who was probably about 25 feet away from me. He said, but why don't you go and ask that fellow? And I went up to him, had no idea who he was. And I said, so-and-so recommended that I would ask you for, uh, you know, that you'd recommend a few books. And he said, well, I'd recommend my book, Knowing God. And then, is obviously J.I. Packer, and uh, and then he recommended Martin Lloyd-Jones' Studies in the Sermon on the Mount. And I went out to Regent Bookstore, uh, probably a few days later, picked up both those books, and I read Studies in the Sermon on the Mount first. And I'm so thankful I read that book mm. early in my Christian life. I feel like it inoculated me from um, a, a superficial interaction with the Bible. And, and it introduced me to a, a, a way of thinking about what the Bible says that you, you always felt like, okay, I can't touch here. This isn't accessible. This right. isn't easy. You have to do some real heart-searching stuff. Lloyd-Jones is great. Just about every chapter he says, does this describe you? I'm not going to try and do that right. in a Welsh, Welsh accent. Anyway, so it really blessed me. I, I that that book blew blew me out of the water and blessed you in more than one way in big ways. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So what happened is they actually had this box of I guess they were uh, little flaws on the cover of the book, um, and they had got a box of these books discounted and on sale out at Regent. And I read the book and it impacted me so much. I went and I bought like twenty copies at this discounted price. They all had these little flaws. And I proceeded to give a bunch of them away and mail them to various people. And there was this very cute redhead uh, at church, and I gave her a copy, and um, she took it and then promptly went off to uh, take or to study piano in Edmonton. 
And as she was there, uh, she was reading it, and uh, she'd grown up in the church and went to church and twice a week sort of thing and, you know, read her Bible and prayed. But she discovered in reading through Lloyd-Jones' studies on the Sermon on the Mount that she really wasn't born again. She wasn't, this wasn't true of her. What, what Jesus is saying on the Sermon on the Mount was not true of her heart, of her life. And that was a real conviction that she came to. And I remember talking to her over the phone, um, how she'd really come to a place of deep repentance and really cast herself on the Lord. She, she was converted by reading Martin Lloyd-Jones' studies in the Sermon on the Mount. And so it only seemed uh, like the best thing to do is to marry that woman. Right. <laughs> and then 25 years later, uh, here we are. 25 years later. kids. I think that this is an amazing story. This, there's so <laughs> many wonderful things that happened. First of all, J.I. Packer yeah. is an absolute hero in the faith, uh, and uh. he's still with us. We're recording this in October of 2019. I just saw him uh, at Regent Campus the other day. He was sitting down talking to some students. What a man of God yeah. and the impact he has had, uh, not only on this generation of followers of Jesus, but I do believe on generations to come. Well, a couple of years ago, maybe yeah, two years ago, I had an opportunity to have a brunch with J.I. Packer, and I told him this story. And I told him, in one sense, I owe uh, to him um, my marriage and my family. And I, I told him how that had all happened, and he had a good laugh. So Fred has an arranged marriage set up by J.I. Packer and Martin Lloyd-Jones, if, if I'm yeah. reading that situation yeah, yeah. correctly. That's fantastic. Yeah, um, and Jesus. Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, famously preacher in London, England, a uh, Welsh preacher who uh, has written a lot of books. And if you look at this, it's a bit of an imposing two-volume set. Uh, and you can get uh, the, the, the large book as two volumes in one. Uh, you mm-hmm. can certainly find that. And we would definitely recommend that for uh, your reading and for your edification. And I'm just looking at, you could look at it basically text by text, like Fred said, 66 sermons put together in a book that uh, definitely will encourage you. Brett, how about for you? Who was uh, the author? What was the book? Uh, what has been the book, rather, that's been speaking into your time as you prepare these messages, as you think through the Sermon on the Mount? Well, I, I definitely, there's a number of books, um, a number of a number of scholars, and then we're always looking at articles as well, written um, on unique passages, and sometimes even on just on one word. And so we're digging into a lot of things. Um, I'll highlight two books because um, Brant Van Rokel, who's the associate pastor in Kits, is not with us in the podcast today, but... Um, Christian Counterculture, uh, it's, or somewhere else I think it's titled The Message of the Sermon on the Mount by John Stott. Uh, John Stott was this wonderful evangelical Anglican um, exegete of Scripture, commentator of Scripture, preacher. And so his specialty is to, uh, to take the text and deconstruct it in a way, helping us to see it uh, piece by piece and, and putting it together and applying it practically. It's a wonderful book. It's not long. Uh, certainly something that you could labor through. Uh, if there was one commentator and one only, I think I said this in the uh, article that, that we published, but if there was one commentator that I could only pick one to take with me forever, but I could take all of that he's written, I would take him. Um, one of my professors, uh, he said that this, John Stott, he thinks is the most faithful exegete of Scripture, uh, he said, since the Apostle Paul, <laughs> which is you know one of those hyperbolic ways of saying he just is the most faithful guy. He, he has this way of taking the text and bringing it from a lofty place where he can have you down and just driving it into a practical place full of just wisdom, sensitive to the world around him at the time, certainly, but uh, I think we can take that and translate it into the world around us. Uh, John Stott has gone to be with the Lord, as they say, and um, 
So, you know, he's certainly a, a scholar from a previous generation, but a really rich devotional companion to you as we work through uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Mm-hmm. Second, there was, there's one more, yeah, right? Second yeah. book would be um, a, a book that uh, one of Brandt's professors wrote. Uh, his name is Jonathan Pennington, a professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, I th- it's one of the more helpful books. I actually had to read this uh, when I was taking a course on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, this book is a little bit more dense. It's a little bit more difficult to labor through because Pennington really wants to be robust in his definition. He doesn't want to shrink anything down. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, he spends like half of the book basically defining three or four terms. He spends like a whole chapter defining a term and, a, and another, so that we can understand what Jesus is getting at in the Sermon on the Mount. So if, if you're into that kind of thing, a little more heavy lifting, a little bit more uh, dense theological jargon in there, but again, really, really helpful book. Um, we've gleaned a lot from it as a team, and uh, yeah, was, we're certainly referencing it. Yeah, one of the things that Pennington touches on that I think has been really helpful for me at least is this idea of wholeness mm-hmm. and, how, uh, and how Jesus is aiming at wholeness. Flourishing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but but even later in Matthew, uh, I think it's Matthew five towards the end, where we read, "You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect." Yeah. One of those verses that always confused me, right? Right? Like, wh- what do I, what do I do with that? Right? Like, I, I'm just destroyed. Uh, Pennington reads that you must be whole, right. as your heavenly Father is whole. And so we were even in community group the other night, and one um, one member said something about, you know, I think Jesus is going for like the totality of the person or something to that effect. Mm-hmm. And I said that's brilliant because you're really getting at what we'll see, you know, quite clearly later, where Jesus. Uh, asks his followers to be whole as his heavenly father uh, is whole. Well, and Jesus' point, I think, right after that is he contrasts what that looks like against hypocrisy. Exactly. Examples yeah. of yeah. hypocrisy, and that's not being that wholly integrated person, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, for you guys, I mean, I know for myself, I've got a couple thoughts on this, but what are those things that as we've started studying to preach, not just studying in general for our own learning, which we've done uh, in the past and continue to do, but studying particularly to preach this series that have really stood out to you? You know, we're a number of weeks in now. We've set the tone for the Sermon on the Mount. We have uh, moved through some of the Beatitudes, and so we're still in this first chunk of Matthew chapter 5. But what are some things that have stood out to you as you look at this text of Scripture? And maybe, I don't know if they've surprised you, and we've talked a little bit about that, or if they're just things that uh, maybe have challenged you uniquely. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, it's all over the New Testament, and we talk about it theologically, sort of the, the now and the not yet tension of the kingdom. Yeah. Um, it's obviously, I don't think you can read the New Testament or think as a Christian without understanding that tension of the kingdom or that tension of our salvation, the now and the present and the not yet aspects. But what I get when I'm reading the Sermon on the Mount is it's easy for us to think in these terms, but to feel the promise of that that future reality that is ours so that it breaks into my present and really changes the way I experience whatever I'm, you know, immediately going through. And Jesus, I think, expects that that future promise is to weigh on our lives a whole lot more than whatever difficulties or inconveniences or troubles or even persecutions uh, we might be facing in this life really are. And that is very difficult for us. I think in our culture, um, I can't remember, maybe it was Paul Tripp that talked about, talked about uh, us having... Um, uh, eternity amnesia. Hmm. You know, we are 
we are so focused in our world on the here and the now and the present that we really, eternity does not register for us as it must if we are going to really follow Jesus in this fallen, futile world. Mm. I think one of the things for me, uh, and I think Scott McKnight alluded to this in his uh, commentary in the Story of God Bible commentary, is that we have to read the beginning of the sermon in view of the end of the sermon. Right. And so uh, Jesus ends, of course, with the story of the man who built his house on the rock, who obeyed his words, like the man who built his house on the rock, the man who uh, ignored them, essentially, is like building his house on the sand. And how these uh, things, these commands that we find in the sermon are meant to be lived out and, and obeyed. And I think that tension between uh, believing and doing... Of course, you know, a few months ago in our Galatians series, we tackled this, uh, you know, ad nauseum, if you will. Uh, But that tension is always one that seems to be at the heart of a lot of questions that we have as followers of Jesus. And I think the way that Jesus has those two things together, believing and doing, Mm -hmm. uh, and how they're not this separate thing, uh, has been really interesting for me to work through myself. uh, As I see, like, this is just part of what it means to follow Jesus. It's both this belief uh, and this doing. Uh, It's his grace who empowers all this to happen, and yet it's us who respond in obedience uh, in the actual obeying his commands. And so for me, uh, that's been really challenging. I think, and and we've talked about this a bit, but the just the difficulty with some of the the key terms and how uh, actually you just quoted Scott McKnight's commentary he's he in his commentary he talks about the word blessed yeah just blessed are blessed are you know in the in yeah. the, the eight plus one beatitudes that we're working through he says in his commentary if you get this word wrong you miss the whole point of the beatitudes no pressure yeah no pressure <laughs> if you get it right you kind of lay out he basically says like you lay out the framework for how to move through all of them and, so give us a definition. Yeah, well, I can give you my definition. I, just, I don't want to get punched across the table because, you know, we've had these meetings yeah. with our preaching team where we've we've had to say, like, I disagree with how you're phrasing that because uh, I think you're emphasizing too much of this or too much of that. And so, I mean, we've had long conversations after much reading and much, you know, staring at, at Greek letters that are linked together to make Greek words that are supposed to be helpful to us, which I just end up going, blessed, that should be simple, shouldn't it? Right. Like, that should be a simple word for us to define. Um, but but how was it being used in this context in the Beatitudes? And so, yeah, I mean, I can give you my definition. I've been preaching it for a few weeks now. Happy, flourishing, and in right relations with God and others. So blessed is happy and flourishing and in right relations with God and others. And it has this covenantal aspect to it where there's something going on about our relationship to God and how that's changed us and, and brought us into his kingdom and and how you can't really say you're blessed in that way if you're outside of relationship with him, but then also how it's going to change the way and, and, and impact the way you relate to each other. And so there's something else going on um, there, and, and we'll look at this in some of the you know, obviously we'll, we'll be preaching through these Beatitudes, but, you know, just the difficulty of sometimes looking at one word that we should all assume is actually not that hard to figure out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think I'd be interested to get your, your feedback on this, um, even just looking at the Beatitudes themselves. And so we talked uh, in East Vancouver, at least, about the fact that Jesus is entering a conversation when he makes these pronouncements about who's flourishing right. and who's happy, right? Even in Jesus's day, uh, there would have been counter narratives, if you will, as to the flourishing and the blessed life. And so, so I'm wondering, as you guys are working through these passages, as you're talking with people, as you're pastoring with people, what are some of those narratives in our day and age uh, that you feel uh, Jesus is coming up against like strongly, mm. and people are kind of feeling the effects of like, oh, if I'm to obey Jesus in this way, uh, like it, it might, you know, it means that this is not going to be lived out. Or- yeah, I, I think at the end of the day, 
we really think so highly of of stuff here and now hmm. that it's hard to imagine being blessed in the midst of your suffering or blessed as you recognize your poverty of spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Right? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And we, we sort of look at everything with the, the lens of, you know, my RRSP contributions and the vehicle I'm driving and the house I'm living in and the clothes that I wear and the job that I have and the vacations I'm planning. And I like all of those things. Those things are all completely fine. It just seems like Jesus is getting at this challenge that if you want to be blessed, you actually have to just, you're not forgoing those things, but you have to realize he's inviting you into a different kind of flourishing. Yeah, It's not defined by the world around us. But that's, isn't that related again to the, the point of the kingdom and the now and the not yet. And we're just so caught up in the immediate and the the future aspect of the kingdom just seems so far removed to us. It, it weighs nothing. I mean, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Well, which one of those, the mourning side or the comfort side, which one of those lands on you? Right. You know, we want to avoid whatever is unpleasant that would cause us to mourn and shall be comforted. I mean, that's that's when's that going to happen? Is right. that going right. to happen? I don't know, you know. And and I just think this is a big problem for us. How do we? How does eternity hit us in a way that where we really understand it is blessed to mourn? Right. We are blessed in our mourning because of the King of Kings who's promised us this future reality. I love what Paul says in Romans eight. Whatever our present sufferings are, they're not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. That's an amazing thing to say. I think it's getting it partly what Jesus is saying here, but Lord help us. But this lends to some of the confusion around how to read this, Mm -hmm. because that it's completely, to John Stott would say, countercultural. It's counterintuitive to say that the those who mourn are actually blessed. So we look. That doesn't make any sense. Happy, flourishing, are those who mourn. Happy are those who mourn. Like no, that 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 can't be true. We read that and we look at it and go, oh, he it's must like mean a something circle. else. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 why it's why it's difficult to read these passages in the Sermon on the Mount, and and it's also why I think there's times where we're not comforted the way that God would comfort us because we're not looking to Him to comfort us in that way because we're not expecting to mourn. We live lives that are, at times, we would call it in, in theology, would be an over-realized eschatology, which means we have an overdeveloped sense of what we are promised here and now. Exactly. Yet we have the reality of the fact that the kingdom has come. We live between the times. We live between the arrival of Jesus, his life, death, resurrection, his, uh, his ascension on high, his rule and reign over all things. We live in that gap between then and his eventual return when the fullness of the kingdom comes. And so we ache in the middle of that. We long for something in the middle of that, but it's actually, we get glimpses of it. We get aspects of it. And so what we're talking about is importing the future promised comfort that God is giving us into the present crappy situation going on right now and the fact that it is blessed to mourn. If I was to ask you guys, um, what is your prayer uh, for the people you pastor? Uh, 
over the course of this sermon series, how are you asking the Lord uh, that we would be changed? Because we're part of those people, of course. Right. How are you asking the Lord that we would be changed uh, over the course of, of this sermon series? Like, what, what is the fruit, uh, Lord willing, we'd see, you know, 10 months, nine months from now uh, when we finish this? If I if I can you know answer my own question if that's okay with you guys mm-hmm. uh, I think as a church plant who's you know four weeks old at this point I mean I can I think of a better place to start uh, for us uh, these are real foundational uh, cultural things uh, for us to get in place uh, as a community and so for me I'm looking forward to how this sermon series particularly sets the tone for us going forward not just in terms of how we read and understand the Bible but for how we interact and engage engage the broader neighborhood uh, the broader culture, all those sorts of things. And so, Fred, what would be your hope for your people? I guess it's pretty simple in one sense, is that the gospel of God's kingdom would get a hold of us and make us like the people that Jesus is calling us to be. Now, that's kind of what we're asking the Lord to do every time we preach. But I think by looking at it through the, the lens of the Sermon on the Mount, it's putting some perspective on our gospel preaching Um that really is challenging. It's, it's saying this isn't a, a little boilerplate truth that we kind of all assent to. Um, this is a truth that radically transforms those who believe it. And um, I can't wait to move through this sermon. I think we're all praying about, look, let's face it, we labor in vain if the Spirit of God doesn't take whatever study, whatever work we do, whatever efforts we put forward. Um, now, I thank God that you know, those who labor in the Lord never labor in vain, but uh, we just have to ask the Lord to move in power by His Spirit, to take His Word, apply it to people's hearts, bring conviction uh, where it's necessary, bring repentance, bring faith, and do what only He can do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I can put an exclamation point on both of those things. I'm, I'm hoping for both of those things that you just shared. Um, I hope it breaks people down in their Mm self-sufficiency and that by God's grace, they'll be rebuilt in light of his sufficiency. So we wouldn't look at things maybe all about how our, our, we're so strong and we're so this and we're so that, but, but just, I hope it crushes people. How's that sound for pastoral (laughs) care? Uh, It's crushed the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. It's, it's crushing me. I I would say that in, in preparation for it. It's, 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 revealing sin in my life and in my heart where I would rather trust in something else. And so I hope that that translates. But I think ultimately I'm praying that this series, which will take us in different parts of 10 months to June 2020, that by the end of it, we would look at it and see that there's been some personal renewal, which Fred, you're talking about the, Mm -hmm. the, the Spirit's work in our life, that would lead to some corporate renewal that would translate into the practicalities of it because of being so saturated in the gospel. Uh, my hope would be that we are now, we're not enamored with the Sermon on the Mount by the end of this series, but that the we're preacher. enamored with the preacher of yeah. the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. And that we just are f- falling far more in love with Jesus, but also understanding the words that he spoke in this most important sermon. Um, and, 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 maybe in light of the daunting task that it feels to enter into it in a deep study this way, but that we would just see a rich reward. I, th- I think that was really important. I think in our first messages, we tried to emphasize this point because it's, it seems to me as though if you understand the way the Sermon on the Mount is often thought about in a wider cultural context, 
it's it's always ethical this and moral teaching that, but it's never seen as the message that Christ himself yes. is, is preaching and mm-hmm. proclaiming in light of this kingdom that he's announcing. And if you break that link, it, it, it loses everything. Yes. And so I, I think we all really pressed on that point, and I l- totally agree with you. We want Jesus to loom a lot larger in our lives because these are his words. Yeah, Sean O'Donnell, who is a, a commentator uh, in Matthew, in the Preaching the Word series, he talks about how there's this chorus that runs through Matthew. When I taught uh, through the Beatitudes a few years ago with the youth, uh, I talked about this chorus being uh, all authority, all allegiance, and all nations. And again and again, Matthew's coming back to this all authority, all allegiance, and all nations, where Jesus has all authority, uh, asking for all of our allegiance, all of our obedience, all of our doing, and it's for all nations. That's right? And of course, you see that perfectly at the end uh, when he sends them uh, to go and make disciples of all nations, uh, right? And so for I think for me, I, I'm encouraged by that and always coming back to them, I'm thinking all authority, all allegiance, all nations, all people uh, going, motivating us not just to be changed internally, but to be changed externally as we go as well too with this good news message. Yeah, and so I mean, I hope that some of the stuff we've been able to say today has been uh, encouraging and strengthening uh, to you who are listening and the series that we're moving through. Um, we just, you know, encourage you to engage with those, get into community group, be discussing that conversation, you know, the, the content, get into a place where it's being prayed through, discussed, implemented, and sort of worked into your life. And uh, we really do know that if uh, we continue to labor faithfully in this as a body of believers in the city of Vancouver, we just expect God to meet us in that. And so whether you're the one who's recognizing that you're poor in spirit or that you're the one who's mourning or the meek or those who are hungry and thirsting for righteousness and you move through it and we get into the salt and light and talk about the the fulfillment of the law and we move into a bunch of really difficult things in terms of adultery and divorce and lust and all these different topics. We just really feel like the, the people of God in, uh, in our churches will be built into people who can bring that hope and that love with some clarity and uh, that as we fall in love with Jesus, we do have that allegiance with him. And so, yeah, thanks for listening and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Here Be Dragons is a podcast of Christ City Church in Vancouver. You can find us online at herebedragonspodcast.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Dragons Podcast.